Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 14, 2014. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, September 12, is 6863. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Dark Past. Powerless, that is the conclusion of step one. Inside of our skin, our body, our mind, our will, we have no effective power with respect to our binge foods. We have lost the power of choice. The mental obsession condemns us to pick up that first bite when we don't want to. And the phenomenon of craving condemns us to continue to compulsively overeat once we start. Our life is unmanageable. Our effort and desires have not delivered the hoped-for results. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, are not sufficient. They fail utterly. The 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. The dark past becomes the greatest possession we have. It is the key to life and happiness for others. And here to speak to us this morning is Christy M. Christy is a recovered compulsive overeater from Portland, Oregon, and is dedicated to carrying this message of recovery. Welcome to the line, Christy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. Good morning. Good morning. And Christy and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting when I was thinking about what to talk about and um, for me, I mean, all I've got is my story. You know, what I've got is my um, my story that starts with what it was like, uh, you know, in the middle, of course, is what happened. And then, you know, the best part of my story is what my life is like now. You know, what my life is like now. Because if I had come in to the rooms of OA and basically just sat around in a circle and talked about how miserable I still was, but that, you know, I was going to start trying one day to really work those steps and hoping one day that, you know, um, the, maybe the obsession would be removed or, hey, I weigh 340 pounds, but I have a connection to a higher power. I mean, what was going to keep me in those chairs? You know, I, and trust me, I, I did that. You know, I came to OA in 1994, 20 years ago, and my abstinence dates from September 9th of 2001. So there's a span there, you know, I'll do the math for you, of seven years where I did not have this obsession removed. Um, in fact, I not only lost weight, but then I gained weight. Um, so I, you know, I know what it's like to sit in the rooms and, and wish for a solution and hope that abstinence would somehow be washed over me by working the steps. Um, but I also want you to know that I um, have had the obsession be removed. I have weighed a doctor prescri prescribed weight for the past um, 11 and a half 
uh, years um, down from, you know, half of what I weighed when I came in, uh, you know, at 340 pounds. So uh, I'm here to tell you that this solution works and that it is possible to have a life transformed because that has happened for me. And it is also possible to have the obsession for food that was relentless and chased me around for decades. It is possible to have that obsession removed when that isn't what I came in for. You know, um, I came in because I knew I was crazy and uh, I needed something to, you know, help me not be so crazy anymore. Uh, I just, I had no idea what uh, the possibilities were. And, um, you know, the, I'm not the type of person that overshares. I'm, you know, I like to try to solve my problems myself. And I'm not someone that will tell you that I'm having a hard day. At least that's how I was when I came in. And so, you know, the idea of sharing my dark past was not something that was certainly appealing to me. But that's what people did for me. And that saved my life. And so the quote that I want to start with is on page 124 and it's in the family afterward and I just love this quote. It says, showing, it, it, it reads, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. And that's exactly what happened to me when I picked up the kit of spiritual tools that had been presented to me when I was finally desperate enough, when I was desperate enough to absolutely know that there was a solution and that I wanted to stop. I wanted to stop compulsively overeating, that it was possible for me. And I do believe that... Um, you know, death and misery for me has been averted. And uh, I am forever grateful for that. Um, for me, uh, you know, my life starts before, uh, certainly my addiction starts before my recovery. Um, I wouldn't be here otherwise. And, uh, you know, I have memories. I'm, I'm 54 years old, and I have memories at the age of four. So we're talking, you know, half a century ago, um, memories of my fourth birthday party um, and the cake that was there. You know, this is one of my first memories of food. Um, and, you know, I, I will say that I, I don't remember who was there and I don't know what, which presents I got, but I do remember what my birthday cake looked like. Um, I remember that very clearly. I remember... Um, I remember uh, eating an ice cream cone and dropping it in a mud puddle and rinsing it off with the hose so I could eat it. And, you know, and I remember the kids I was with getting grossed out that I wanted to eat the ice cream cone. And, you know, I rinsed it off thinking that that would maybe um, lessen their fear of me and, uh you know, I could still eat the ice cream cone. You know, maybe I could have the best of both worlds. People would still like me and not think I was weird, and I'd get the ice cream cone. Most important, I'd get the ice cream cone. And I remember, you know, having those experiences as a kid. I'm the oldest of four, and, you know, I, I just remember that I thought differently about food than my siblings. And what that meant is that I didn't stop 
Um, I didn't change my behavior, um, meaning I did not change my behavior by uh, stopping doing what I was doing. I didn't, I, I didn't say, wow, maybe this is kind of weird that I'm obsessed about Halloween candy the minute we get home from trick-or-treating. Um, what I decided to do at that point at a very early age is to hide my behavior around food. That was my solution. That was my solution. And that tells me that you know, this obsession with food and my abnormally, abnormality around food started at, a, at, at an early age. It started at an early age. And that I figured out what I would do is start hiding my food. And that's exactly what I did. I would negotiate with my siblings around all of the holidays and all of the special treats we got. You know, I'll clean your room if you'll give me your candy. You know, I didn't like cleaning um, <laughs> any more than any other kid did. But, you know, I'd be willing to sell my soul uh, for some extra, you know, candy or whatever the holiday treat happened to be. Um, I hung out with my mom um, as often as I could because she enjoyed baking and cooking and doing those kinds of things, and that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to try whatever was being baked in the kitchen. I wanted to learn how to do what she was doing so I could, um, you know, become a little bit more in independent with the types of foods I could put together. And um, in my home, there wasn't any kind of restriction around food. You know, we had a lot of food and I could eat uh, pretty much what I wanted. Um, I wasn't wearing the consequences of my food addiction at that point. Um, you know, I was a pretty active kid. I was a tall and lanky kid, and um, I wasn't, uh, you know, overweight as a child. Um, I didn't feel like I fit in, and most of that had to do with being tall and lanky, but um, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't a fat kid by any means. Um, and when my mom would say things like, you know, when I got home from school and I would eat pretty much an entire meal, uh, you know, the minute I got home from school, she would say, don't spoil your dinner. And I would say, I'll eat dinner too. You know, not to worry, I'll make sure I eat all of my dinner as well. So I wasn't someone who was told I had to clean my plate. I took care of that just fine. And... Um, you know, when I hit, uh, you know, around puberty, like I hear so many other people talk about, um, you know, that's when I became much more obsessed with my body and how it looked. And, um, you know, I was 5'4 in, in the fifth grade, and I weighed 124 pounds, and I thought I was absolutely huge. You know, I thought I was absolutely huge. Um, and that began my true obsession with my body and you know, how fat or thin I was, and that continued for decades. Um, you know, kicked in at that age and, and, uh, and stayed with me for many, many, many years to come. Um, I went on my first diet at that age. I uh, was, you know, I started counting calories. That seemed like a really good idea. I had this book that was huge, huge, huge book, and it had calorie counts for, you know, fast food restaurants and frozen foods and um, all kinds of stuff, you know, and I had decided that what I would do is count out, you know, 900 calories a day of whatever 
And, uh, you know, it didn't matter the combination of foods I was eating. I just wasn't going to eat any more than 900 calories. Um, I went to Weight Watchers with a cousin of mine. I went to Diet Center at the age of 14. I, you know, my, my teenage years were spent um, completely obsessing about food and diet and my body and weight where other kids my age were maybe learning some life skills you know, maybe learning how to get along with other kids, um, maybe learning, you know, how to, I don't know, um, you know, do, you know, algebra and, um, you know, put together book reports and write papers with outlines and all those kinds of really, um, you know, uh, helpful things. I was obsessed about food and weight. And um, and that's all I was obsessed with. I mean, that was it. That was the that was the focus of my life. And I don't remember honestly when it wasn't a focus of my life. I mean, it just it was relentless. And it, you know, I've often described even now, at, you know, at 54, trying to remember a time in my life when I wasn't obsessed with food. And I I, I honestly, I mean, except for the past, you know, 13 years of my life, I can't remember before that not being obsessed. I cannot remember a time when I was ever free, ever free of the obsession. And, um, you know, it, you know, it eventually that obsession, um, you know, the consequences got greater because unfortunately, like many of us, my disease didn't just stop um, at, you know, somewhat of an oddity and somewhat of, a uh, you know something that set me slightly apart from other people you know my the consequences of my food addiction progressed and so did my weight you know I'm someone who um, you know at for most of my obsession and most of my addiction I wore the consequences of my addiction um, you know in my body it was reflected by you know, weighing by weight gain, um, you know, weighing 40 pounds overweight at one point and, you know, going on one of those diets, um, losing the 40 pounds and gaining 80 pounds back, um, you know, going on a diet and losing the 80 pounds or maybe 70 or maybe 60 and that was close enough and, um, you know, 20 pounds overweight sure looks a lot more appealing than 80 pounds overweight and you know I'd get down to that point always 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 with my eye on the prize and the prize was uh, being thin being thinner certainly and being able to eat whatever I wanted you know eat like a quote unquote normal person unfortunately for someone like me I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea at all in my mind what eating like a normal person looked. I didn't know what that looked like. Uh, for me, it looked like someone who ate as much as I did, ate with, you know, just complete insanity and did not suffer the consequences. Did not suffer the consequences. That's what I thought normal eating was. Uh, I, I had no idea that, you know, there wasn't some magic metabolism out there that I did not have. 
um, normal people, uh, normal healthy eaters don't eat like I did. They don't eat like I did. They don't obsess about food the way I do. Um, so what would happen, unfortunately, is I'd get down to that magic weight or close to it and I'd start eating again in the same way I was eating that had me gain the 80 pounds in the first place. And you can guess what happened. You can guess what happened. I gained the weight back. And there I would be all of a sudden, all of a sudden I'm 100 pounds overweight and I have no idea how I got there. No idea. There was no connection between the way I was eating and being 100 pounds overweight. You know, I just, I just didn't get it. Uh, I knew I was different about food. Um, you know, I surrounded myself with people that ate like I did. You know, I wasn't going to hang out with thin, healthy people because they didn't want to go out to eat all the time. And they didn't want to sit in a restaurant and order appetizers and an entree and, you know, sweet alcoholic drinks and dessert and, you know, bread beforehand or chips and salsa or whatever it was, you know, they would just sit there and, you know, you know, sip on a diet Pepsi or whatever. I mean, that just wasn't, you know, I wanted to go eat with people who made me feel like, uh, made me feel not so bad about myself and my choices. Um, you know, I had all kinds of, um, you know, all of those boundaries I was never going to cross when it came to food and eating. You know, I was never going to, you know, be a certain size. I was never going to wear a size 18, you know, or a 16 or a 20 or a 22 or a 24 or a 26. I was never going to weigh 200 pounds or 250 pounds. Um, I was never going to weigh 300 pounds. And um, you can imagine how surprised I was when uh, I went to the doctor because I'd been experiencing stomach problems. And she, you know, she told what she wanted to focus on were not my stomach problems, but the fact that I weighed 305 pounds. You know, that's what she wanted to talk about. And, well, I didn't want to talk about that. Because there wasn't anything I could do at that point about the fact that I weighed 300 pounds. What I had come in to talk to her about was the reason I was experiencing pain, which is because I had gallstones. You know, so we certainly took care of having my gallbladder re removed. But, you know, I, I looked at her and I said, what do you mean what am I going to do about the fact that I weigh 305 pounds? You know, maybe my gallbladder weighs 105 pounds. Let's start there. You know, I, there was nothing I could do about the fact that I weighed 305 pounds. I mean, I had tried. I had tried at that point. You know, I'm only describing to those of you who are listening a few of the things I tried. You know, um, aside from having a subscription to Shape Magazine and reading those before and after stories and, you know, reading about those people that all of a sudden decided they were going to change their lives, you know, that just did not inspire me anymore. You know, I, I had done that a thousand times. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to eat different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something new. Um, I'm going to become a different person. 
I'm going to become a different person. I'm going to start exercising, you know, and, and I did that. You know, that's certainly part of my story too. And, and part of my story is living in a thinner body. You know, part of my story includes exercising, you know, seven days a week, you know, a couple of hours a day. I mean, a part of my story includes, you know, restricting food to the point where, you know, I thought I was going to go absolutely insane. I was absolutely crazy. I was as crazy thin. I was as obsessed about my weight and what I was eating and what kind of shape my body was in when I was thin as I was when I was morbidly obese. So being thin did not change anything in my head. It changed my physical appearance. It changed my physical appearance. But I was just as crazy thin as I was fat. So for me, um, you know, when I finally got to the point where, you know, I had gained even more than that 305 pounds, you know, my gallbladder unfortunately didn't weigh, a, you know, 105 pounds. Um, you know, a, a couple of years after that, I uh, remember um, talking to someone who, you know, I didn't talk about the fact that I was morbidly obese. It was clear to see. I didn't talk about food or how obsessed I was with it with anybody. It was, this was all happening in my head, all happening in my head. Uh, just me, myself, and I would sit and try to figure out what I was going to do. And I just, I was just defeated. You know, I was so defeated that I actually um, expressed, you know, that I needed to do something to a friend of mine that I worked with, and he told me about Overeaters Anonymous. And that was in 1994, in August of 1994, and that was the first time I came into the rooms of OA. And what I was exposed to at that time in 1994 was um, a couple of prayers out of the big book, you know, certainly the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer and the promises and the steps and the traditions and, um, you know, the meeting that I attended started with how it works. And people talked about abstinence in that meeting. And, um, you know, I wanted to know what that was, what that meant. And it meant different things to different people. I wanted to know what they ate. I wanted to know what they didn't eat, you know, and at that time, you know, this was out, out in Seattle, uh, where I lived at the time, there were people that, um, you know, they were, you know, vegan or macrobiotic or raw foods or eating for their blood type. I think that was kind of in right then. Um, and, you know, nothing wrong with that, but, you know, I'd, I'd kind of already tried that sort of thing. And I didn't really understand what um, abstinence meant. I did not understand what it meant. And so people, you know, there were people that ate three meals a day with nothing in between. And so what I said to myself is that I would eat, you know, um, three, three meals a day. I was going to have one plate of food. I was going to pile it as high as I possibly could. And I did, but I wasn't going to go back for seconds. You know, I was going to just pile that thing high and I was not going to go back for seconds. And I did not... Um, you know, I didn't identify binge foods or anything like that. I said, look, I am not a sugar addict like some of you are. I 
I eat everything. I eat everything that isn't nailed down. You know, that's my problem. I eat everything. And, you know, I, it doesn't matter. And so uh, doing that, I lost. I actually lost 140 pounds. I got down to 200 pounds and um, worked the steps to the best of my ability. I had a sponsor. Um, and, you know, keep in mind that there was no obsession that was removed. Um, you know, it eventually it was in the back and I could hear it whispering really loudly, you know, that entire time. And, um, I, uh, you know, I was going to three meetings a week. I was sponsoring six people. I, um, you know, was still calling the shots when it came to food. I would, uh, decide that I was not going to eat sugar, but it was okay to eat honey and, you know, uh, maple syrup. I mean, you know, I had all kinds of crazy ideas still going on with my food because the focus for me was still on food. The focus for me was on food, the, the steps and the other stuff kind of came secondary. You know, OA became much more of a social outlet for me than, um, an opportunity to hang out with people who had what I wanted. You know, I hung out with people I wanted to hang out with and we'd go to lunch after the meeting. And um, unfortunately, um, that did not work for me. And I left OA, uh, stopped going to meetings, stopped sponsoring. I moved, you know, halfway across the country and decided to stop attending meetings and because uh, I didn't like the meetings, you know, in the Midwest where I was living and, um, you know, I gained, uh, I gained weight. I gained 100 pounds back. So now here I am at 300 pounds again and I was stark, raving, crazy. I was eating absolutely out of control, absolutely out of control. And I... I knew the only thing I'd gotten even a modicum of recovery from, the merciless obsession, was OA. I knew that was the only thing that worked. I knew that was the only thing that worked for me. And I did everything I possibly could to avoid going back to OA. I just, I knew. I knew what it meant. It meant I would have to give up eating compulsively. And I was not ready to do that one more minute before I walked back into OA. I, I was not going to go back. Um, I just was not going to go back. And, um, you know, what I was going to do is move from one state to another, uh, which is how I ended up from Michigan to Minnesota. And um, I, uh, I, I, was, I was crazy. I wish I could... Explain, you know, I hope none of you were as crazy as I was because it was no way to live. I'd gotten laid off from my job. I wasn't taking care of anything. Talk about a life unmanageable. I didn't, I didn't call any of my creditors and say, wow, I got laid off. Can I work with you? I just shoved all my bills and, you know, cut off notices in bags and threw them in this extra room in my home. You know, my relationship was falling apart. You know, I, um, I, I, was, I was a mess. You know, I was a mess. I would tell myself every single day that I wasn't going to, that day was going to be different. And sure enough, there I would be, you know, at the bread store with hot bread coming out of their oven trying all the different, you know, types. I'm not quite sure which one I want. 
can I try some of that one? Can I try some of that one? Can I try some of that one? And um, I'd get all three different types I'd tried, and I'd go home and I'd eat them, and I couldn't leave any evidence. You know, I'd be hiding food from my partner in cupboards, you know, all over the place, and then I'd have to go back the next day and replace what I had eaten. I mean, it was absolute insanity. And uh, I finally, I, I finally said, you know, I, I can't live like this anymore. I, you know, I got two choices here. I've got two choices here. The best idea that I could come up with, the best idea that I could come up with to somehow stop that insanity, to stop that cycle I was in, to, to stop the absolute madness, the absolute madness I was living in, was to end my life. That was the best, that was the only way that I could come up with. That was it. That was the best idea I'd had. That was the best idea I'd had because honestly, I felt like I had tried everything else. And, and I thought, oh my God, I can't do that. I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I have got to try something. I've got to try something. I want to stop so bad that I'm willing to take my life. And I hope it doesn't get that, that way for any of you. I hope it doesn't have to get to that point for any of you. And I just said, I'm done. I'm done. Not only do I need to stop, not only do I need to do something, but I want to stop. I'm willing to stop. I'm willing to stop eating compulsively. I don't know how. I don't know that it's possible. But that's, that's how desperate I got. I was actually willing to give up food. I was willing to give up food. And that's what it was for me. That's how desperate I got. I said, I don't care. I don't care if I have to stop. I don't care if I have to give up food. And I walked into a meeting. I walked into a meeting, and the meeting that I attended did not start with how it works. It, it didn't tell me, you know, how to work the program. It told me, first of all, why, why, why I had been so tortured. The, the meeting, you know, I, I started at the beginning of the big book. I started by reading the doctor's opinion. And this is what I read. And I'd never been presented with this before. I'd never been presented with this. It, it's on page XXX of the doctor's opinion. It says all these, and, and by these, you know, what the big book is talking about here are different alcoholics, you know, the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink, the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger, the type entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. All of these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. That was me. The phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy, an allergy, an abnormal reaction to, in my case, food, an abnormal reaction. Once I put sugar, fat, flour, volume into my body, I could not. My body reacted normally. My, my body reacted abnormally. It was normal to me, certainly, at that time. But it, it re I wanted more. I wanted more. It didn't matter that I was full. It didn't matter that I didn't like what I was eating. I could not stop myself from continuing. 
And that manifestation of an allergy and that phenomenon of craving sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And I didn't know what that meant exactly when I walked into that room, but there were people in that room who were abstinent. There were people in that room whose obsession had been removed. And I didn't need a room full of people. I only needed one. I needed just one person who sounded as bad as I was, who had told me what they did. I needed to know what they did. I, that's what I wanted. I just needed one other person to show me a way out and to say, if you want to climb into this lifeboat, come on in. You know, we will show you what we did to have the merciless obsession removed. And, um, you know, it's, it's all throughout the book that, first of all, you know, the first thing I needed to do was to stop eating compulsively. You know, I needed to stop eating compulsively. And what that meant simply was for me that I needed to identify binge foods. So, you know, definitely the sugar, fat, the flour, and the volume, you know, those were, you know, key for me. Um, I was not someone who could find a food plan that told me I could have a half donut. Um, and there are food plans out there um, that will tell you that. You know, there's every, pretty much every kind of food plan out there on the planet. I couldn't do that. You know, I couldn't just have a half donut. I could have a half box. I could start with a half box, but half donut was not going to work for me. Um, I needed to find one that... Um, you know, for me, I needed to know, I needed to have boundaries around my food. I needed to know exactly what portions I was eating. I needed to weigh and measure my food. I needed to be accountable. Um, I needed to write my food down, what I was going to eat. And I needed to call it into a sponsor. And that's exactly what I do. And that's what I did. And that's what has worked for me. I would never have done that in, you know, ever before. You know, the sponsor I worked with before in OA I would call and talk to after I ate. You know, I would call and say, I just ate, you know, raw cookie dough. I, I, here's what I ate. Um, even when I ate, you know, quote unquote, within whatever my food plan was at the moment. I never ever called anyone and told them what I was going to eat uh, before I ate it. And I never, ever would have eaten what I had committed. Um, I'm pretty sure even if I had, but at that point in my life, on September 9th of 2001, that's what I did. And I have never not done that since that day. Um, I haven't varied from my food plan. I haven't had, you know, birthday cake on my birthday. I haven't had fudge at Christmas. I haven't overeaten at Thanksgiving. Um, I haven't walked by a candy dish and grabbed candy. I haven't uh, accepted food from people so they won't feel bad when they're offering me something that they brought in to share at the office or that they made special, um, I, you know, I simply will say, no, thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, or if someone sets something on my desk, you know, that they've given to everybody, I take it and I give it to somebody else or I take it with me and I throw it away. Um, you know, they don't need to know that I have an obsession of the, 
body and an obsession of the mind and an allergy of the body. Um, you know, I can, um, you know, and, and I also don't need to eat it just to make them happy. Um, that's not something I do today. I, uh, my life and my sanity is much more important than that to me. It's everything to me. I put my recovery first. I put my recovery first. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, um, it is nothing short of a miracle, you know, that I, you know, started weighing and measuring my food on that day. I called my sponsor and I dug into the steps because what it says is that the steps, and this is in the big book, the steps are designed to correct the defects of character and remove the obsession to eat compulsively. That to me is what the steps are designed for um, as it applies to my addiction. The steps originally were designed for people who were alcoholics, um, who had lost the power of choice in drinking. And I had certainly lost the power of choice in eating. And for years I sat around and said, eating is different. I have to eat, I have to eat to live, but I did not have to eat compulsively. And that's the way I was eating. And that is the way I was eating. And through the application of, um, you know, certainly eating food that was appropriate for my body, uh, I lost weight. I got down to a maintenance weight. And I have not varied from my maintenance weight for, uh, like I said, 11 and a half. I guess it was April of 2003, so um, 11 years now. Um, I, my, I've been at a, a maintenance weight range. Um, haven't, you know, all of a sudden gained 10 pounds or any of that. You know, I weigh myself on a weekly basis and I'm at a maintenance weight range, which is lovely. I can buy clothing and, you know, uh, clothing shops. Um, you know, I have, I have choices around that, which is awesome. That's really exciting. And, uh, you know, especially when I got to that maintenance range, that was just nothing less than thrilling. Um, but I will tell you that that is not going to sustain somebody like me. Someone who has um, a mind like I have is not going to be sustained sitting around talking about food and how much I weigh um, 13 years later. You know, 13 years after b putting the food down, that's a pretty one-dimensional life. And um, that I knew uh, would get me in the end. You know, it, that to me was going to be as obsessive as talking about food and weight was before I put the food down. Um, what was going to sustain me and what was going to keep me was the, uh, the growth away from that mentality, growing away from the food, uh, changing completely because if I think the way I've been thinking, I'm going to act the way I've been acting, and eventually, eventually, I was going to go back to the food. I knew that. I had lived that. I had experienced that firsthand. And if I hadn't experienced that, I had seen that happen many, many times in the rooms of OA. You know, people that lost weight, went out, came back in even worse shape. And I did not want to be one of those people. I did not want to be one of those people because I knew, I knew, and I know today that I have another relapse in me. I know I have another relapse in me. I don't know if I have another recovery in me. I don't know what it would take to get me back. And I don't play with fire I don't play around with my abstinence and my recovery today. My head is in this big book or it's in the 12 and 12 every single day, every single day. 
I work through the steps. I call my fellows. I turn things over. I start with, you know, pages 84, 85, and 86 of the big book. Upon awakening throughout the day, you know, what do I do when agitated or doubtful? If I can't say, okay, God, remove this, God, direct my thinking, I call people up and I say, here's what's going on for me right now. I need to name it, claim it, and dump it. But that's after having worked through all of the steps, after having worked through steps one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve. I didn't skip any of the steps. I didn't skip any of the work. I didn't, you know, cut myself short because I didn't really understand. I just kept moving. I just kept moving. I didn't stop myself because maybe I wasn't doing things perfectly. I just, I just kept working the steps, you know, trudging along that road of happy destiny, as we say in the big book. Um, you know, I know, uh, I know what this disease does. I know what this disease does. Uh, I know what it did for me, and I know what it did to me. I'm very clear about that today. I'm very clear about who I am and what I'm up against. Um, I've seen this disease, uh, you know, completely ravage people. My dad died in January at 450 pounds after being absolutely ravaged by the complications from type 2 diabetes. Uh, my mom is also insulin dependent and morbidly obese. Um, you know, my dad is the oldest of eight siblings, and one of his other siblings has also died from the ravages of uh, morbid obesity and diabetes. Um, six out of eight of the siblings have type 2 diabetes. My mom is, um, has a brother, uh, my, you know, my uncle and my mom, again, both my mom is also insulin dependent. Um, uh, I'm not. Um, I don't show any signs of type 2 diabetes. It doesn't mean that won't happen, but so far, uh, you know, I'm almost 55. That hasn't happened. My blood levels are normal. Um, you know, my cholesterol is normal. I'm healthy. I'm healthy physically. And I'm not obsessed with food today. I mean, I'm not obsessed with food today. And had you told me that was possible when I came in, and I, and I think people said that, but I, I could not even comprehend that. I, I didn't know what that meant. I never would have imagined that that would mean anything. I, I mean, I didn't think that was possible. It didn't mean anything to me. I had no context for what that would look like. I, I just could not have comprehended that. I, you know, my entire life and way of thinking has been changed. It's been changed in ways I never could have imagined. And what people taught me is to just, you know, to just, you know, have a pause between taking any impulsive action. Um, and certainly that started with food and it's, and it's spilled out, so to speak, in other areas of my life. Um, I have relationships with people today. I was not a people person. I didn't really care for people. I just wanted to sit on my couch and imagine a really fantastic life someday that I was going to live. And today I am living that fantastic life that I could not have put together in that crazy, compulsive, overeating, sick brain of mine. 
Um, I never could have imagined, never, ever, ever could have imagined. I have, I'm living a dream life today. Um, I have a dream job. I live in a dream city. Um, I'm not obsessed with food today. I, um, you know, I'm normal weighted. I don't have to worry about being winded when I walk around, you know, uh, my work campus with people. Um, and, you know, I can take the stairs. I can, uh, I can say no thank you to food. Um, I am just absolutely inspired by my recovery. Still today, 13 years later, I have no desire. I have no desire to eat compulsively. And, and yet, you know, I'm up with all of you um, early in the morning because I know how important it is for me to keep close to my fellows. You know, it's, it's important for me to keep close to who and what I am so I never, ever forget that. I don't ever want to forget that any of the life I have today is not because of me. It's because of a connection I have with a higher power. It's because I talk to people like you on the phone. It's because I clean up my side of the street today. Um, I have no, no um, delusions at all that I was somehow able to think my way out of a bag of Doritos. Um, I could not have done that. I couldn't. I tried. I threw everything I had at it and uh, was unable, unable to do that uh, for myself today. So I, uh, I'm really grateful that I know where my recovery comes from today. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Christy, for that message of hope and possibility. We thank you so much for your time this morning, service this morning. Christy's contact information will be offered after the conclusion of this recording. Now we're going to open the floor for any questions you might have for Christy. Star one to unmute and identify Good morning, yourself. Maria. I have a question. Yes, and your name, please. This is Mary Lee in Paso Robles, California, on the same time zone as Christy. Okay, um, Mary Lee, go ahead. Can you talk about um, your 11, 10, 11, and 1? Uh, you're talking about 10, 11, and 1. Steps 1? Well, your, your, your spiritual practice, you know, how you start your day, how you end your day, and then... Um, that, just that, that'd be good. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. So for me, I mean, you know, I can make anything complicated. You know, I can buy 25 books on, um, you know, how to wake up in the morning and do all of that kind of stuff. Um, but for me, it doesn't get any, any better than what's described in the big book. You know, upon awakening, get on, get on your knees and pray. I mean, the best thing that, the best advice I was given is to get on, get on my knees in the morning and say the serenity prayer, say the third step prayer and say the seventh step prayers. I don't have an actual, I don't have a religious practice, but that's my spiritual practice. And those are the prayers I use. Those work for me. Um, I love the St. Francis prayer as well, which is in the, the uh, 12 and 12. Um, and then to pray, pray for if there's anyone that I have, I'm harboring any feelings against, um, that to me is an opportunity for prayer. I pray for their health, happiness, and prosperity because that's what the big book also describes. You know, I pray for so-and-so's health, happy, health, health, happiness, and prosperity. 
Um, so that helps me. Um, also, uh, so steps, uh, steps 10 for me is as well an opportunity to, step, step 10 for me is simply a four through nine. You know, what is my part? You know, whenever I'm disturbed, it's a spiritual axiom, it says in the 12 and 12, that whenever I'm disturbed, it's, it's about me. It's my problem. You know, maybe someone has done me wrong, but, but it's up to me. My reaction to what someone does, what I perceive someone's doing to me is my problem. And my reaction to that is what I'm accountable for. It's not going to do me any good to try to change their behavior, to let them know they hurt my feelings. Maybe there's an opportunity to have a conversation, but I don't do that without running it by someone else. Um, you know, just because my thinking is a little bit wacky sometimes. So for me, steps 10 is clearing up whatever wreckage I might have caused or avoiding it at all costs if possible. So what is my problem? You know, am I afraid? You know, I look at what, where, where was I afraid? Was I selfish? Was I dishonest? Um, self-seeking, you know, am I worried? Of, is it my ego? You know, what's going on here? Um, getting to the root of that. To me, that's a step 10, four through nine, clearing it up, naming it, claiming it, and dumping it, like I said. And step one for me is admitting I'm powerless over food. And uh, for me, you know, I mentioned what I do for my, um, you know, for eating. Uh, that to me reminds me every time I sit at the table and I'm ready to eat my abstinent food that I am powerless over, over food that I cannot just eat spontaneously. I cannot go to a drive-thru and order a hamburger, a small order of French fries, and a Diet Coke. That doesn't work for someone like me. Um, even though, you know, there might be meals out there for under 500 calories and whatever other kinds of things, that just doesn't work for me. So I have found something that does work for me, and um, that's basically what I do. Keep it, you know, I try to keep it basic. So... Um, just not keep it any more complicated than what's in the big book. Thank you, Mary Lee, for the question. I have a question. Yes, your name, please. This is Mary T. in Vermont. Mary T., go ahead. Thank you. Um, I just wondered if you could comment on step nine and personality, the personality transformation that you've had. I'm in the middle of my step nine, and I often feel quite disturbed that um, – I'm, I'm doing prayers in the morning. I'm working step 10 throughout the day. I'm actively working my ninth step. And um, in regards to my family, I find it uh, disturbing that I'm st I still fall back into um, these defects that are that I need to make living amends to. I need to make um, uh, verbal amends to, and then and then live in that. And I'm finding I'm mm -hmm. quite afraid to um, make these amends because I feel like I'm. Uncapable, incapable of doing it. Um, I, you know, I believe intellectually that God will remove them from me, but uh, I'm not seeing that quite yet. Getting some of the promises. So, what was your experience with that personality transformation in Step Nine? Well, I think. Oh, there's a really bad echo. I don't know if you can hear that, Leia. We'll take. Care I'm getting of a really bad echo on the line. Thank you. 
Um, the way, um, you know, I, and the family afterward uh, talks about that in the, in the big book. If you haven't taken the opportunity to read that, I would encourage you to do it. Um, and other stories certainly within the big book describe how much more difficult it was to make amends to people that we have ongoing relationships with than the ones that, you know, we, you know, uh, we don't see on a regular basis. And that was my experience as well. You know, I, it was easier for me to make amends to the poor little widow that owned the grocery store trying to make ends meet, you know, make amends to her for stealing from her when I worked there, you know, stealing food and beer and cigarettes. It was easier to make amends to her than it was to make amends to my family because I had to have ongoing relationships with them. And I'm the type of person that because I um, am someone who's particularly drawn to instant gratification um, and things happening immediately, um, it was more difficult for someone like me to just kind of wait things out. You know, I wanted to make amends and have relationships with other people changed immediately. And that didn't happen. But what I did is on an ongoing basis, I, um, I kept treating people like in my family, which I do today, I treat people in my family as good as I do the people I'm in recovery with. You know, it was, you know, the, you know, the people I'm in recovery with were, were kind of my playground. You know, I could, I could be disturbed by someone in the meeting and try to, you know, try to work out my difficulties with them, even if they didn't know it. You know, I didn't need to go up to them and say, I, I need to make amends to you because I don't like you. I didn't do that. You know, I just tried to work out those disturbances. And eventually, I promise you, at least my experience was that those disturbances will go away. They will go away. Not always in the timing I found that they um, that I thought they should, but I had made amends to my dad years ago, and I was able to look him in the eye because I was with him as he was dying. My whole family was together, you know, my siblings, um, who I hadn't talked to all of them, you know, I wasn't close to all of them, but my mom and my three siblings were with my dad when he died. And I was able to look at my dad as when he was lucid and say, I love you. I want you to know how much I love you and what a great dad you were. What a great dad you were. And I was able to do that with my siblings. I was able to treat them with love and compassion. And um, that experience completely changed our relationship, completely changed our relationship because I have an ability today to have love and compassion. And, and I didn't, you know, in year one, it's taken time. And I just hung in there knowing that if it had happened for other people, it would happen for me. So I would encourage you to just keep coming back and to keep living the way the, the big book describes. Um, people like us um, have the opportunity to live. Thank you, Mary T, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Alida from Dallas. Yes, go ahead with your question. Hi, um, thank you so much for that share. The first time you were uh, in OA, you had some recovery. You wore the steps and you lost your weight and you helped others. What, what went wrong or what was different the second time around? Um, the second, so the first time the obsession was never really removed. It was more a diet than it was, you know, a design for living. Um, and 
what was different the second time around is that I was I was desperate. I was done. I was desperate. I had reached the jumping off point. Um, I thought I had reached that. I thought that's where I was in the beginning. Um, I, you know, and I, I don't know uh, what brought me back. Again, unfortunately for me, it came down to two choices, life or death. And I chose life. And I knew the only way I was going to get, you know, any kind of relief was not going to just focus on a diet. I needed to do the whole thing. I needed to dig in. Um, I needed to, uh, you know, give up those foods that I loved so dearly that I tried to eat without suffering consequences. And I knew I would have to dig into the steps. I just knew it. You know, if it, if it could work for a heroin addict, if it could work for, you know, other people living on the streets, um, possibly it could work for someone like me. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know why it worked for me. I don't know why it didn't work for my dad. My dad came into OA um, and he died at 450 pounds, um, you know, with an amputated leg because of diabetes. I don't know why he didn't recover and I did. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I just know for me, I got to the jumping off point. Thank you for the question, Rita. Who's next? Star one to unmute. Suji. Suji, go ahead with a question, please. Thank you. Thank you so much for moderating, and thank you, Christy, for your message and your story. Wow. Um, I'm thinking about... The, ma the magical idea we have at the beginning of our recovery that we can go from step one to step 12, skipping the ones in between. You went so beautifully through the whole thing with the focus on step one. I love it. Um, and what I'm wondering is how do you apply your experience, strength, and hope to sponsorship where, where we are really asked to practice patience, waiting with hope, with, with other members. How, how do you apply this stuff in sponsorship? Thanks, I pass. Well, I think, I mean, the beauty of the 12 steps is that it was designed for someone like me. <laughs> you know, someone like me who's, you know, wired to be pretty selfish. Um, and the way for me to keep my recovery is to give it away. You know, I'd like to tuck in with my recovery of my newfound life and just be all by myself. Um, unfortunately, the big book describes, you know, all throughout how we do service and how we sponsor other people. And I do not vary from the way I was sponsored. You know, I, it, it's what works for me. And that's really good because I can think that I've got maybe some better ideas um, than everybody out there. But I really, I mean, that's the first place I was taught to just pass it along the way it's been passed to you. Now, my style of sponsorship doesn't work for everybody. It's not like people clamored to work with me and stayed with me. You know, I'm sponsoring different people today than when I started. Um, what's most important to me, of course, is that I'm in recovery. You know, there's nothing, there's no greater joy than watching um, a sponsee recover and get that, you know, get what's, what's promised. Get, get what the big book promises as the result of working the steps. Um, but, you know, I also know that recovery isn't for everybody. 
And, you know, my style of sponsoring isn't for everybody. Um, but there's nothing I do that's different than what my sponsor did with me. I mean, I sponsor the same way I was sponsored. So I, I pass it on. That's how I repay my sponsor. That's how I stay in recovery. I pass it on. Thank you, Suju, for the question. Who's next? Hi, this is Angela. Maybe I can uh, get some clarity. I'm sure, at- Angela. Go ahead with the question. Thank you. Thank you. I'm new at sponsoring, and it seems that I can't get anyone <laughs> to like listen to me. <laughs> I don't know. Like I say, call at this time and read this today, and you know, oh, maybe we'll just go over your food. And they just don't do it. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> Well, I guess I would say, I mean, kind of the same thing I I said. Um, You know, there's one of the stories in the big book. And, and, you know, even if you read, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill's account when they started, you know, they they didn't, the first person they talked to didn't necessarily grab on. I mean, except for Bill D, of course. But, you know, I don't know that that was the first person. I mean, they had to go out and find people to work with because they knew their recovery was at risk. So, what I will say to you is if you're still in recovery, um, even if those other people aren't, you've done your job. You know, at least that's the way I look at it. Um, you are bound to find someone um, who will be willing to work with you. Um, I, you know, again, you know, I've had people call me up absolutely desperate and never call me again. I mean, that happens. Just, you know, just be Again, I, you know, not everybody wants what I have and is willing to do what I do. So, I mean, that's just the nature of of us as addicts. I mean, you know, we would eliminate, completely eradicate, you know, um, eating disorders if everybody wanted what we had. Our rooms would be overflowing, right? And they're not. So, uh, you know, I would say just keep going. You will find someone who will work with you, who will want what you have. And I don't take it personally when people don't want what I have. Thank you, Angela, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Questions for Christy? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Linda Ricard in North Carolina. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. Hi, Christy. I want to thank you for your service today and to all those who are on the line. My question is, I've been in program many years, and my service level has really changed. I would like you to address the issue of O&On, helping the families of overeaters. My service work is in this area right now. Just a little input if you have any insight about that. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, I I don't have insight. I know that I know of O&On. I think it's great. I think it's an awesome area, um, you know, to help families of compulsive overeaters, just like um, Al-Anon has helped the families of alcoholics. Um, I think it's a great idea. I've never been to a meeting. Uh, I don't know of meetings even out in the Portland area, so I haven't had the opportunity. I know, I think it was, um, it's big in certain areas. So yeah, I really don't have an opinion 
opinion, except that I think any 12-step program is a good idea. So that's my opinion on that. Thank you, Linda, for that question. Anyone else this morning? Hi, this is Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Your turn. Thank you. Hi, Christine. Thank you for your share. Um, my question is, so when you're when you were going through the steps and you were not recovered, but you knew you had done something wrong. I I feel like last night I indulged in gossip and I and it was malicious and it was better in that I actually shut my mouth at some point. But I feel bad and I feel really um, bothered by it. Um, I know that in the steps, uh, when you're recovered, we start living a better life. But meanwhile, we're not recovered, and I am aware of this. What do you do? Because, like I said, I'm not, I'm not feeling really well. I got up in a really bad mood, and things just kind of um, spiraled downhill from there. I got to make amends to my husband now. Um, but, like I said last night, I, I, I. I just behave really poorly. What do you do when you're not recovered and you know that you, and it's bothering you? Um, Thank you. With clean that. It up and I, I clean it up immediately. So, for example, you know, just what you said with gossip. And, you know, recovery is, is not an overnight matter. It's a process. It's not like all of a sudden I don't do these things. For the most part, you know, thank goodness I'm aware of them. And what I'm hearing you say is that you're aware of it and it's disturbing. Um, now, it might be that, uh, you know, the amends is, needs to be made to the people you were gossiping with not necessarily uh, to the person you were gossiping about, you know, that's why it's always good for me to run it by my sponsor. You know, here's the situation. Here's what happened. What do you think I should do about it? Um, you know, or run it by one of my fellows whose recovery I respect. You know, here's what happened. Um, do you think I owe an amends? And they can be completely objective because they're not the people I was gossiping with typically or the people that I was gossiping about, you know, they're 100% objective. So um, when I've been in those situations, and I have, um, you know, at work talking to my boss about a coworker, what I will do, what I have done, and eventually, you know, the pain of having to apologize um, becomes greater than the discomfort of doing the thing in the first place. So, you know, what started as me having to make amends has, you know, eventually I have found has turned into me not needing to make amends because I don't do the behavior anymore. So eventually practice makes, you know, progress, not perfection, I guess I'll say. But, um, you know, it gets better, I will tell you, as long as you keep uh, keep going. But, um you know, it might be the people you were gossiping with. You need to say, you know, I don't really like what I said last night and, you know, and keep it simple. And I'm sorry I did that. And that's it. You know, just keeping it simple, running it by other people. That's what works for me. And knowing that how disturbing it is to wake up the next day and think, why did I do that? You know, you can beat yourself up over it until a candy bar sounds like a good idea. So I would encourage you to take care of it. That's what works for me. Thank you, Nancy, for that question. Anyone else this morning? Star one time mute. Hi, this is Jane. Hi, Jane. Go ahead. 
Thank you. Thank you, Christy, for your wonderful story. Um, I was just uh, sitting here thinking about the face-to-face meetings. Um, I'm newly recovered, and going to face-to-face meetings I find really difficult because I'm, what I'm hearing is nothing about the big book or the process, but more meetings, you know, more tools, and I end up leaving the meeting because I feel really frustrated. What has been your experience with carrying the message? Thank you. Well, I came from super strong, incredible meetings um, to, uh, you know, living out here on the West Coast uh, where the meetings are not what I had experienced. Um, And I knew that because I'd done research before I moved out here. Um, And what I have found is that I get the recovery, um, the big book message from strong AA meetings. So I attend open AA meetings, and I have a really great network of AA people. But I also have compulsive overeaters that I talk to on the phone. I also have a network of people that I've um, built up, uh, you know, and so I make sure that I, I'm talking to people who get my addiction. You know, my AA friends, if they don't have a compulsive overeating history, um, they understand it in theory and it makes sense to them, but I need to be talking to other compulsive overeaters. But the face-to-face meetings, I really like face-to-face meetings. I just, I like that. That's just my thing. And I have found some awesome, awesome AA meetings out here. And they talk big book. I mean, it's all about the big book and the 12 and 12. So very big book focused. Thank you, Jane, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Going once. Twice. And three times. I'm assuming all minds are cleared. Christy, thanks again for your message of hope and what's possible through the program of recovery. We appreciate your service this morning. And I'm going to close this morning's meeting in the way we always close our meetings here on A Vision for You, and that's from page 164, the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.